going to do a little something a little different. Normally, I would um, normally I would kind of take a, take you to a text of God's word, and we would camp out there, and and we would just draw what we can out of it in the time that we are allowed. But uh, today, we're going to be looking at uh, kind of doing some Bible drills, if you will, looking at uh, different texts here and there. And so, and I didn't bring my big Bible with the thick pages to help me turn quickly. So, um, so it may, I'm, I'm a little out of the habit, but anyway, we're going to be beginning in John six this morning. I kind of thought this is something I used to do, uh, at least once a year. And, uh, I had a pastor that, um, back when we were doing communion, uh, of course, we only, like a typical uh, Baptist church that I've been to, we only did it quarterly, which I've always believed we should do it more often, and uh, so I'm glad that we're doing it monthly now, and, um, and so, but uh, one of the things that he did used to do is just about every, just about every time we'd have communion, he would always kind of put out the, the symbols of communion in front of us. He would always keep those traditions in our mind. Uh, the reason why is because it, it just kind of gave a lot more meaning to it. And, and I used to do this about once a year uh, when I first came here. And uh, it's been a while. It's, um, I know I haven't done it since COVID. And I'm pretty sure it's maybe about a year or two before COVID. So, but there is a reason why we do communion the way we do. And just about everything kind of has a tradition behind it. And again, none of these things are necessarily to break fellowship over with a church that may do it differently. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, apparently I'm having a hard time breathing. Um, it's not really about that. Uh, it's just to help you get as much out of communion as you can. There's always a fear that the more we do it, um, the less it'll mean. Um, I'll be honest with you, I, if I were to ever plant a church, I think we would probably do it weekly. And um, just the reason why is just to keep it. it. It does for your other senses, your taste, your feel, your, your, your smell. It does for those what your ears, uh, what preaching does for your ears. It just keeps the gospel in front of you over and over again. But there's always a fear that if we do it too often, that it would lose its significance. And, and, that, and that's honest. Uh, I think that's an honest fear. But we preach every week. We, uh, we sing every week. We, we do. I'd love to baptize every week, amen? <laughs> and so, um, so again, I don't, I don't think, the, I don't think the, uh, the fear is doing it too often. I think the fear is losing the significance in our hearts. Uh, now, I'm not saying that we need to go to weekly. That's not what I'm saying. But, uh, but I think monthly is a, is, a good, is a good pace at which to do it. Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. I think if we're gonna err on either side, we need to err on the side of often, not on the side of seldom. And so, uh, so I think monthly is a good pace. Um, but to help you with that, I do like to kind of keep some of these traditions in front of you. And I haven't done it in a while. To be honest with you, this week, it was really difficult for me. I was working at home and we've got some renovations going on at the house and so a lot of sawing, a lot of noise, and you know I'm way too ADD for that. And so uh, just had a little trouble concentrating all week. And I thought, you know, I hadn't done this in a long time. I think this would be good to uh, remind us of these things. 
And again, none of this, except for the first two, none of this is anything to break fellowship over with another church. Um, but it's just to look at some of the traditions that we have, some of which you may not be familiar with, and, and just to know why we do it the way we do. I've, I've been told that traditionalism is the dead faith of living saints, but tradition is the living faith of dead saints. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what we wanna do. We don't wanna be traditionalist where we do tradition because that is what our faith really is, but we do wanna honor the traditions of the past and, uh, and be connected to those dear saints of the past in doing so. And so why do we do things the way we do? You know, the truth is, is that we have reasons. We, we have reasons for why we bring it to you instead of you coming to get it. There's, we have reasons for uh, just about everything we do is filled with tradition. And so, um, so I wanna share just some of those with you this morning. Uh, I don't plan to take very long in doing so, but of course, I know you've heard that before, but... Um, but the, but the goal is just to kind of help you see these things. And so my hope is that in doing so, it'll be a more meaningful experience for you. Uh, communion is one of the most meaningful things that I believe we do in the faith. It's one of two ordinances, or if you prefer, sacraments uh, that Christ has given us. And um, it, they're, they're filled with meaning. And... Um, and the traditions that have developed behind them is full of meaning as well. And so I wanna help you with that. So looking at John chapter six, we're just gonna kinda begin with the elements themselves. Why, why is it that we eat bread and drink of the cup? And that is because uh, it kinda comes from John chapter six, verse 47 through 51. And we already read John six. This is not a verse that speaks directly to communion. Uh, however, I, I don't know that the early church could have read it and not thought of communion as they, were, as they were reading this passage. And so I don't wanna say it's completely unrelated. But here's what it says. He says, truly I say to you that whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then in verse 33, he says, truly I say to you that whoever, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, our Catholic friends do tend to take that passage a little too literally. And they have a doctrine uh, it's a fancy $3 word, transubstantiation. Boy, doesn't, doesn't that just warm your heart? And so, uh, but they have this doctrine that says that once you eat uh, the bread, it literally becomes the body of Christ. Uh, when you drink the wine, it literally becomes the blood of Christ. Uh, there has never been a time in Christian history where there was not significant opposition to that teaching. Uh, significant, and they used it in the Middle Ages and beyond to manipulate many, many people and, uh, and keep them under some captivity. Of course, the reformers rejected this, and all of the free church traditions have rejected this through the years, and the reason why is because Christ is very obviously speaking symbolically here. 
He's not, he's not preaching cannibalism. He's not teaching that we are to have to crucify Christ over and over and over and over again. Christ died once for all the sins of all mankind. That was sufficient. He doesn't have to do it over and over and over again. And so that's really the real problem with that doctrine. And so, in other words, what Christ is saying here is that when we eat of his flesh, drink of his blood, we are essentially taking Christ into our lives by faith. We are, we are feeding of his grace. We are taking it in. I've, I've often made the comparison of these big fish that like to hang out in front of a dam and just keep their mouth open and, and all the things and all of the, all of the little things that come over the dam just falls into their mouth. And we're like that fish that we just place ourselves within God's appointed means of grace. And we are just recipients of his grace and of his righteousness. When you take in food, your body digests it and it really becomes a part of you. It sustains your life. You don't remember every single meal you ate in all your lifetime, do you? Of course you don't. But every single meal contributed to where you are now. Every single one. It became a part of your life. And when you take Christ in faith, his life becomes your life. We call this our union with Christ and that in a very real way, when Christ died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And when he was, and when he, his perfect sinlessness was put on our account so that when you read the gospels, it's, it's in a very real sense, we're reading our righteousness. It's our biography because this is the righteousness that Christ earned for us. And that is placed. And when we take communion, we are, we are once again reminding ourselves, we are feeding on it in a sense, that righteousness and that grace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. It doesn't literally become the body and, and blood of Christ. That's kind of silly. But when we are taking it by faith, it does sustain us. It does help us. It does remind us again and again and again of the gospel. And so just like the, the body is represented by the bread and the, and the blood is represented by the, the wine or the juice, here's just some things to think about. When you, when you bite down on the bread, just think about the body that was crushed for your account. Think about how when Christ, when your teeth bite down and, and beat up and grind up, that bread, remember how Christ was beaten and how he was bruised and how he was struck for you. And when the blood and when the, when the juice pours down your throat, I like to think of the blood pouring down that was poured for me and for my sake. And so those are just some things I like to think about whenever, whenever I am taking of communion. It's uh, very meaningful. And by the way, uh, I've mentioned wine already and juice. Why, why do we use unfermented elements? Um, that is um, kind of something that, as far as I know, most Baptist churches, I, I know of a few that, that have actual wine in communion, but, but they always give you kind of a choice. They have two separate trays that they 
give you the option. But here we've always done non-alcoholic wine, grape juice, essentially, just about every church I've ever attended. We've always done that. And we also use, uh, we don't use like, you know, sunbeam bread or, uh, or anything like that. We actually use unfermented, unyeast, un, unyeasted, leaven, yeah, unleavened bread. <laughs> why, why, do we do, why do we do that? Well, regardless of popular opinion, it actually has nothing to do with prohibition. It actually has nothing to do with Sunday school uh, the, the temperance movement of America's past. It really has nothing to do with any of that. Uh, the reason why can be found in passages such as um, Exodus chapter 12, verse 15. You see, during the, during the Passover, they were not allowed to have any yeast whatsoever, uh, not in their bread, not in any of that. The bread was to always be unleavened. In fact, they always said, uh, that for the entire duration of the Passover feast, they were to have no leavened bread in their home. In fact, for 14 days prior to the Passover feast, all leaven, all yeast was to be taken away from their home and they were not to eat any or partake of any at all. If they did, uh, from the first day until the seventh day, that person would be cut off from Israel if they partook of leavened bread. And what's interesting is that that symbol of leaven carries into the New Testament, carries into the New Testament. So like, for example, Galatians chapter five, verse nine, Paul uses leaven as a kind of symbolic way of saying, do not allow sin in the church to affect the entire lump, just like a little bit of leaven will infest an entire lump of bread. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, it says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as, as you really are unleavened. You know, in other words, become what you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, in the New Testament, fermentation and yeast and leaven are carried on as kind of a, a symbol of sin, all right? Now, that doesn't mean that it's a sin to get white bread at Walmart. That's not what it means, all right? This is all symbolic things that Paul is using. But the reason why we, and much of the free church tradition and in Baptist churches, the reason why we have chosen to use unfermented elements is because we do not want the symbol that Paul and the, and the New Testament uses for sin, we do not want that to be mixed with the symbols that we use for the body and blood of Christ. In other words, it's, it's an it's a understanding of purity, the righteousness of Christ, that Christ, when he died for us, he had no sin of his own. But when he died, he died for our sin. And when we partake of Christ, we are partaking of the one who is unleavened, not one who is leavened, so to speak. So it's a consistent symbol that was avoided in Passover and that symbol was carried on in the New Testament. And so when you, when you think of why am I eating this unleavened bread or why am I drinking this grape juice and, and why don't we use real wine? Again, it has nothing to do with prohibition. It has everything to do with the fact that we want those symbols of the body and blood of Christ to be as pure as possible. 
And we don't want the symbol that the scripture uses for sin to be mixed in with those symbols of the body and blood. And so it reminds us of the purity of Christ. And, and when you are drinking and you notice that there's no yeast, there's no fermentation, you know, the, the bread is kind of hard to bite down on sometimes because it's, because it's hardened, because that softening influence of yeast is not there. Think of the purity and the holiness of Christ. Think how he was innocent, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that you and I might become the holiness, the righteousness of God. Strong words. I'd be hesitant to use them if it weren't the exact words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter three. And in some mysterious way, in some way that, that God has figured out when Christ was on the cross, he became our sin for us. Doesn't mean he was a sinner, but he died in substitution of our sin so that when we come to Christ, we become the very righteousness of God so that we can approach God the Father in absolute confidence. You know, yeast has a tendency to touch and affect everything that's around it. I remember uh, I used to work at a check cashing store in North Little Rock, and we had a Papa John's that was right beside us. And uh, one day, one of the guys came in, and he says, man, I'm in so much trouble. And I said, what happened? He said, go, go look in the back. And we shared a garbage can, one of those huge dumpsters, and uh, at the end of the day, they're supposed to run the unused dough through the oven to cook it. And he decided to skip that. He just threw the dough into the garbage can. And this is in July in the middle of Arkansas. And uh, when we came out there, we saw that this garbage can was literally overflowing with pizza dough that had risen. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> and so... <laughs> He's like, dude, help me. I was like, what do you think I can do to that? I was like, I'm not, I'm not going swimming in yeast, dude. And so, and so uh, yeah, he got in a lot of trouble for that. That's just how, that's why scripture uses that is because it's how much it grows. Just a little bit of yeast rises to unimaginable proportions. And so that's why we avoid using it in the symbols of the body and blood of Christ. Again, we're not specifically told in the New Testament that we must use unyeast, unleavened bread. We're not specifically told that, but we do it because of its connection to Passover and because of that symbology that comes with it, that tradition. And so, and uh, so that's what we do. You know, in some churches, you'll take you'll take communion and. Everybody gets up and they form a line and they come down here and the, and the bishop or the priest or the pastor is there down at the front and, uh, and he gives you the elements as, as you come down to get it, you take it and you go back to your seat or I've been in one church where uh, you had to go up and take it and you, you took it back to your seat and you actually took it in your seat as a family. We don't do that. We, we actually bring the elements to you, and that is a pretty consistent uh, thing that Baptists have done, and, and again, all the free church traditions have done. Uh, not all the Reformed traditions, but most of the free church ones have. And why is that? The reason why that tradition developed is because of Romans 4 and, and passages like it. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Baptists are proudly within the Reformed and the Protestant tradition. We have stood firmly on the ground of justification by faith alone, that there is nothing that you can do or must do in order to come to salvation in Christ. We have stood on that. We have been imprisoned for that truth. We have died for that truth. We have protected it, and we have taught it at all cost. And one of the reasons why Baptists have traditionally elected not to have you come to receive, to get the elements, but you stay where you are and we bring the elements to you. Why is that? Because Christ did not make us come to him, but instead Christ came to us. And the reason, it actually has kind of two traditions that have kind of surrounded around it. He commands the church to take the gospel to the people. And just as the elements represent the gospel, they represent uh, the body and blood of Christ that was, that was given for us. And in the same way that they were given to us, Christ came to us. He did not require us to come to him. There are, salvation is a work of grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your works, lest any one of you should boast. So that's the first reason is because by us bringing it to you, it reminds you that Christ came to us and that salvation is a gift of grace alone and that there is nothing you do to approach God in your own effort. But there's also another reason, and that is because of the Great Commission. You see, it's, 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 very, um, it's very different in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was told that they are to be a light of the nations so that the nations would all come to them in order to find the law. But in the New Testament, that's actually flipped on its head. And Jesus tells the church, the nations are not to come to you, but you are to go out into the nations. And so in the same way, it reminds us of our responsibility. It reminds us that, uh, of, uh, that of our need to take the gospel to those who need to hear it. And so I stand here, I serve the deacons who then go out and serve you. And that is a picture of evangelism. In fact, what I often think of when the guys are going back there and, and passing out the elements, I often think of Lynn Steele and Gary Woodard and so many others that had a gospel influence in my life. And I take some time to thank the Lord for sending them to me to share the gospel with me. And here the last couple of times we've done communion, I've encouraged you to do the same as you're waiting on the elements. Think of all the ways that God prepared you in your life to receive the gospel at just the right time. How his timing in your life was perfect and how the person that brought it to you was faithful. And think about maybe who you need to be faithful to to bring the gospel to them. 
Who was it that brought the gospel to you? Was it a parent? Was it a stranger? A spouse? A preacher? A friend? Whoever it was, they were used by the Spirit of God. And whoever it was, it was it was them, it was Christ preaching through them. And the Spirit of God opening your eyes to hear and receive. It was all by grace. And so we bring the elements to you. We don't make you come and get them because that would demonstrate an idea that you must get up or you must exert effort to come to the body and blood of Christ given for you. And so that's why we bring it to you instead. This is one that's maybe not as familiar, but uh, again, oftentimes whenever whenever uh, we do communion, I'm gonna step down here for a minute, but oftentimes when we do communion, when other churches do communion, Again, you'll line up and the, and the preacher, the priest will stand here and, and he will give you the elements and you'll go back to your seat or you'll take them right there or whatever. And we don't actually do that. In fact, every Sunday we have communion, we pull this table out. And the reason why we pull this table out is for one reason, one reason only, is so that I can stand behind it. And why do I stand behind it? Well, think about, think about what these elements represent. They represent the blood, and they rep- or excuse me, they represent the body, and they represent the blood of Jesus Christ. And what does it communicate to you if in order for you to receive the body and blood of Christ, I stand here in front of it? What does that communicate to you? You have to come through me, right? And that makes me your priest, not your pastor. But the scripture is very clear. In fact, it's First uh, Timothy, I believe. I left my notes. But First Timothy chapter two, verse five, says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus. Jesus is both man and Christ, and he is the only one who stands between you and the Father. You have, because of the blood of Christ, you have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And for that reason, when I come up here, and even though it takes extra effort to get this table out in order for me to stand back here, I insist on doing it because the picture is, is that you do not have to come through me to get to Christ. That's the idea. And so now again, does everybody do that? No, and it's a tradition. It's not something to split a church over, but the tradition is there and it's there for a reason because we're trying to communicate and everything we do, we're trying to communicate the gospel. What's the whole point of taking communion? It's so that we will proclaim what? Christ's death until he comes. And we want, and these traditions have arisen over time and grown because we want to communicate every aspect of Christ's death and all the truths that it commemorates and all the truth that it implies. We want to communicate those as biblically faithful as we can using symbols and pictures. And so that's why we do that. That's why we do that. You can also look at uh, Romans chapter five there. It represents our one mediator. It represents our one mediator. Why? 
you do not have to come through me to get to God. The Reformed and and the Baptist in particular, we have always held to the personal priesthood of the believer. In other words, what that means is, is you have direct access to Christ. So much so that when someone comes to you and says, well, you pray for me, you have a responsibility to pray for them because that's a, because you are a priest in that sense. You have the responsibility to pray for others. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through a parent. You don't have to go through whatever. You have direct access to Christ through the blood and through the body that was given for you. And so that's why, that's why we hold to that tradition and even make a little extra effort to do so. And so why do we stand behind the table? That's why. Because I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor. You don't have to agree with everything I say for us to have fellowship. Because I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor. You guys know how I feel about certain biblical uh, or unbiblical groups that are writing some of the popular worship music today and, and I won't use them. And sometimes, especially when we first started kind of teaching this to you, uh, sometimes I would get someone to come up to me and say, hey, would you listen to this song and tell me if it's okay to listen to? I'm like, hang on a second. That's, that's not the point. Uh, do you like it? Then, then listen to it. It's okay. You know, I'm not gonna tell you what you can and can't listen to in your own car. And, and I mean, that's legalism. Just, just know that when you come here, we're gonna sing music that is written by responsible theologians and not by entertainers and quite frankly, not by pagans. And so I'm not your priest, I'm your pastor. And so you don't have to agree with everything and that's okay, we still have fellowship. So, so that's why. And then finally, and this is really the last one, but why do we wait? Why do we wait? Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, all humility and gentleness. In verse four, he says, excuse me, with patience bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on and says, what's the basis of that unity? Simple. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Do you hear the Trinitarian aspect there? There is one body, that's the church. And how is that church created? By one spirit. Because you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, and how to respond to him through one faith and one baptism. There's one God and Father of all. Who is he? The one who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear that Trinitarian aspect there? That's what unifies us, one faith, one baptism. That's how we confess our one Lord, our one Lord. One God and Father over all. Our, our unity is not based on common interest. Some of you like golf. Some of you don't. Some of you like to hunt. I know of at least one young lady in this room 
that uh, thinks that's the cruelest thing you can do to an animal. I know uh, many of you like Arkansas and some of you are weird and you like LSU. Uh, some of us like, like Kansas City Chiefs and some of us like the Cowboys, which is really strange. You're, you're a real believer. I, I admire you for that. Some, you know, we all have different things we like. Some of you are Democrats. Some of you are Republicans. Some of you are rich. Some of you are poor. Some of us are poor. Some of you are, are this and that, whatever. But our unity is not based on those things. Our unity is based upon the one gospel by which we all come to one God, one Father, through the calling of one Spirit to one Lord. And we have, been, we have participated in one baptism that has brought us all together in the unity and the bonds of Christ in a way that the world cannot explain. And when we wait for one another to take communion, we, we represent that unity. Because none of us have a fast track to Jesus Christ. None of us have the inside scoop. And by the way, none of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. I'm a work in progress. You know what? There's a lot of things you could say about me, and guess what? So much of it would probably be true. That's okay. I used to do a little poll. How many of you gossiped about me this week? And there, and there was an occasional brave one who would actually raise their hand and say, yeah, I did. <laughs> you know, most people are like, no, not me. <laughs> I don't care. You know why? Because you already know the worst. It took the slaughter of God's innocent, righteous son to save me. I am that bad that that's what it took for God to save me. And you know what? Anything else you could say to me about that, aside from that, truth or not, is child's play compared to that. You already know the worst. And I wait for you to take communion and you wait for me to take communion because we all come to Christ the same way. And we are all unified by one gospel. That's why we don't. I've been to a church before that had a communion bar. It was just over there on the side and families or even individuals could go take it anytime they want. I mean, I guess I can't necessarily point to anything necessarily biblically wrong about that. But to me, that's just, that's just, that just destroys the idea of unity just destroys the idea of it because we take it together to represent that we all come to Christ the same way through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that qualifies any of us for heaven. That's the only thing that qualifies any of us for righteousness. If it were not for that, then we would all be facing eternal damnation. It would be forever always dying, never dead, facing the wrath of God were it not for the body and blood of Jesus Christ given to you in the new covenant. And that is the basis of our unity. That is the basis of why we're here this morning. And that's why we're doing this, to proclaim that message. 
So we wanna represent the truth of the gospel in every way that we can to you. Again, some of these are are well-known traditions, some of them not so well-known, but there's things that I've found over the years that I thought, man, people need to know that. They need to know why we do it the way we do. And so as we take communion, I'm gonna ask you, what will you focus on this morning? Which one touches your heart this morning? Which one spoke to you more than the other? Which one is especially meaningful to you? Which one will you reflect on and meditate on as you await and as you take the elements? We want it to be meaningful to you. Don't let it become just rote repetition any more than not allowing your prayer to become rote repetition. Don't let it become that. But let it become meaningful. And one of the ways you can do that is by keeping in mind these traditions that have kind of grown up around it. But most of all, most of all, reflecting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when I was uh, a kid, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, the servants can go ahead and make their way forward as we're ending on this, but as we're preparing. But, you know, as I was, when I was uh, younger in the faith and growing up and growing in my faith and the way our church did communion, we only did it four times a year. We did it on Sunday night uh, when, most of the pe- when most of the people would not be there. It was kind of for the super spiritual ones, if you will. And, um, and it was just kind of, the, the whole implication was it was something that you had to be good enough for. And, you know, that's what I kind of took from it. And for three years, I never took communion because I never thought I was good enough. In fact, um, when we talked about going to monthly, one of the, one of the concerns was that there would be, uh, some people would not come because they don't feel like that they deserve to take communion. They would, they would skip it. And beloved, let me please plead with you, don't do that. We do it on Sunday morning and we do it often when as many people are here as can be. Why? Because this is about grace. This is not about you being good enough. You are, let me, let me just save you some time. You're not good enough. You will never be good enough. That's why we invite you to this table because Christ invited you first. Christ invites you to come to the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel this morning, we do, we do advise that you withhold because you cannot partake by faith what you don't have in your heart. You need to come to Christ. You need to trust him in salvation. But I do encourage you to observe this, this ordinance. Observe the sacrament. Ask questions. Parents, if your kids ask you questions, don't shush them. Answer their questions. Explain the gospel to them. Okay? Because two of my three kids got saved because we had communion and they asked questions. Don't don't rob them of that. All right? And so let's bow our heads and let's prepare our hearts for this time. And if you don't know Christ is your savior, right now would be a perfect time to take by faith what he's offering you. Will you come to Christ?
Will you accept his sacrifice for you and for your sins? And if you're here this morning and you know Christ, let's prepare our hearts.